0: Before we begin, we want to let you know a bit more about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has digestible courses in topics from the basics of scientific thinking all the way up to stuff like quantum computing.
2: In today's episode, we explore gene editing in humans. If you want to delve into this subject and learn more broadly about the world of computational biology, Brilliant has a whole series of courses that merge the algorithmic thinking of computer science with the problem-solving approach of physics to address problems in biology from explainers on crispr to practicals on dna composition brilliant is super informative accessible and really fun
0: so to put your spare time to good use and hugely improve your critical thinking skills go to brilliant.org/newscientist and sign up for free and also the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription again that address is brilliant.org/newscientist
2: Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your essential guide to the week's happenings in science. I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist News Editor.
0: And I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm our podcast editor. Joining us this week is New Scientist Journalist and podcast regular, Graham Lawton. Hi, Graham. Hi.
2: On this week's show, we look at the evolution of leadership styles, which basically boils down to are you more of a bonobo or a chimp? Mm. And we're going to hear about the latest in human gene editing. As well as that, we've got news of a new super-Earth exoplanet nearby and how a snake has adapted to flight.
0: But first, coronavirus. In the magazine this week, we investigate what has been called the biggest remaining question about COVID-19. That is, how immune will you be once you've had it? Graham, you've written the cover story for this on The Mag. Is there good
1: news? There there is good news. Um, uh, It's preliminary, but things are looking a lot better than they were six months ago. And if you cast your mind back to that time, when we found out that the mysterious disease circulating in Wuhan was caused by a coronavirus, uh, what was already a troubling situation suddenly got a little bit worse. Uh, That's because, as a rule, coronaviruses don't produce a very strong immune memory. That's the kind of long lasting response that allows our bodies to thwart subsequent attacks and which make vaccines possible. And then reports started emerging from China and Japan that people who'd been given the all-clear were testing positive for the virus again. And that kind of seemed to confirm immunologists' worst fears. But now, sort of six months in, the mood has lifted considerably. There are lots of reports coming out of stronger-than-expected immune responses to infections and also of those responses making all the right noises to convert into long-term immune memory.
2: So we've got enough evidence now to suggest that we do form an immune memory of the virus?
1: We do. Um, and questions still linger on how long that memory will last, but there's no longer any doubt that immune memory to SARS-CoV-2 exists. Well, that's, that's massively good news, right? It is. Um, first and foremost, it's massively good news on the vaccine front, because if natural infections don't generate long-term immunity, provoking it artificially may actually be impossible But if they do, and it looks like they do, our natural immune response will be a really useful guide to making a vaccine more powerful and safer. Uh, But it also plays into some other very live debates, including herd immunity, which I think we're going to get into a bit later. But also decisions about whether to issue things like immunity passports to people who've recovered and how and when we can start easing lockdown measures even further.
2: So all this time, the big question has sort of been put quite simply, will we develop immunity to this virus? But immunology is sort of mind bogglingly complicated at the best of times. So what do we really mean when we talk about immune memory as such?
1: Yes, immunology is mind bogglingly complicated, as I've found to my cost over the past couple yeah. of weeks. Uh, so immunologists like to tell this quite simple story about a measles epidemic in the Faroe Islands in 1846. So a Danish doctor called Peter Panham went there to investigate and he discovered the disease raging. Um, but he also found 98 elderly people who were immune to the disease. They hadn't caught measles. Now, they turned out to be the survivors of the island's previous outbreak in 1781. And a single encounter with that virus 65 years ago had endowed them with long-term protection.
2: And a similar thing happened with Spanish flu too, didn't it? So survivors of that were then immune in later years to similar strains of flu.
1: Yeah, that did happen. I mean, we do get flu repeatedly, but that's because the virus keeps on changing. But once you've had a specific strain of flu, you won't get it again. Um, This is not true of all viruses. Some are less immunogenic. Uh, The best example, I think, is respiratory syncytial virus, and that causes severe lung disease in infants and so far it's resisted all efforts to develop a vaccine Um, and most viruses actually somewhere in the middle you know they elicit a moderate immune response and a weak kind of fairly brief memory and vaccines for those kind of viruses are possible but they often require regular boosters to maintain the immunity. Now until SARS-CoV-2 came along immunologists would have put coronaviruses at the kind of more difficult end of the spectrum and that's because there are four coronaviruses in general circulation and they all cause common colds Um, They do raise an immune response. That's really why you get the stuffy nose, the fever and the headache. But they don't leave behind much of an immune memory. So within a year or so of clearing out a cold virus, you're vulnerable to reinfection. But on the other hand, there are are two other human coronaviruses, which are SARS, the original SARS and MERS. And they're somewhat better. Protection against those seems to last two to three to four years. So the question really was with SARS-CoV-2, is it like a cold or is it like SARS-1? Um, and several immunologists have told me this is now the most important scientific question about the virus. But we are starting to get answers and it looks pretty promising and we can't answer it fully yet. I mean, that will just take years because you've just got to wait to see what happens. But there are more reasons to be hopeful than fearful.
2: Great. So, so what reasons have we got to be cheerful then?
1: Well, we go into a lot of detail in the magazine story, but basically some of the clinical data on people who are recovering from the virus strongly suggests that their initial immune response is exactly the kind of thing that you would see if you were expecting it to mature into long term memory. And the greater the magnitude of people's initial immune response, the powerful and longer lasting the immune memory. There are some other hopeful signs too. So there are zero confirmed reports of reinfection. Uh, Those early ones from China and Japan were probably false positives or false negatives. And even healthcare workers who've had the virus and have gone back to work on the front line are not getting ill again. Uh, That's really strong indicator that they're immune, at least in the sort of medium-term months. Uh, We also know that macaques can't get infected twice. So there have been some experiments where macaques have been given the virus, they get the disease. Five to six weeks later, they're re-challenged with the virus and they don't fall ill again. Again, that's a really good sign.
2: Yeah, so macaques, uh, they're they're pretty good models of human immunity, aren't they? So does that mean we're out of the woods?
1: Not quite. I mean, there are still fears that the immune memory will fade quite quickly and that people who get a mild or in asymptomatic case won't lay down memory at all. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. So people who've had the virus
0: but have been asymptomatic, uh, which we hear a lot about, Um, so what we're thinking though now is that you you do have to be ill to get immune but but maybe if you've
1: had a very mild case are you kind of immune already that's possible Uh, there are some intriguing signs that previous exposure to certain cold viruses can offer some immune memory protection against SARS-CoV-2 now that kind of goes against what we thought we knew about cold viruses but maybe immune memory to some of those viruses is stronger than we thought um There's also some emerging evidence, again, this is really early stuff, that very mild infections can lay down immune memory in the lining of the nose and the lungs, and that can kind of block the virus from re-entering. But anyway, these are questions that still have to be answered. But anyway, the fact that short, medium-term immune memory occurs naturally is really good evidence that we're going to be able to stimulate it artificially, that is, with a vaccine. Because vaccines don't just mimic the natural immune response, they turbocharge it. So the hope is that with this new understanding of the immune system's natural reaction to the virus, vaccinologists will be able to develop a really potent, really long-lasting vaccine.
0: And what about herd immunity, the the idea that we could let the whole
1: population get the disease and, and be done with it? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a natural question to ask now that we know that immune memory forms, but uh, actually there's very little chance of that getting us out of jail, um, if you look at the epidemiology if we just let the virus burn through vulnerable populations it will kill millions of people 30 million or so and completely overwhelm healthcare mm. systems but yeah with a vaccine absolutely we can get herd immunity in actual fact uh virologists say the only plausible way of achieving herd immunity to this virus is with a vaccine um so that you know that's great news but then we're into a whole other territory about whether anti-vaxxers will start campaigning against this vaccine you know but that's a whole other story
2: That's our sci-fi alert and Rowan this week we have exoplanet news.
0: Yeah we found some planets outside of the solar system quite close by in galactic terms.
2: So usually when we talk about planets outside of our solar system we're talking about the Proxima Centauri system about four light years away. Is is it that one this week? How far away are we talking?
0: No this is uh, 10.7 light years away so a bit further than Proxima Centauri and, and a Well, it's not our nearest one. There's some other near ones, Barnard's star, um, but it's still very close in galactic terms. Uh, But the interesting thing about this one is that the star itself seems to be stable. It's a red dwarf class of star, which is the same as Proxima Centauri and Barnard's star. Um, And actually, that's the same as most by far most of the stars in the galaxy are this red dwarf class but they're usually quite flary. They're really prone to flaring up and sending out bursts of energy, huge bursts of energy.
2: And that's not so good for nearby planets and our hopes that there's life on them.
0: No, not at all. So uh, they're also known as M-class stars. They, they send out these flares that uh, just burn away the atmosphere from any planets nearby. Uh, we know there are planets in the Proxima system. Uh, they're our nearest exoplanets, the nearest extrasolar planets to us. Uh, There's another star nearby called Trappist-1, which has seven um, Earth-sized planets around it. Uh, But the worry, if you're concerned about alien life, which we all are, we all I am, uh, is that the stars in these systems, because they flare up, it would sterilise any life that's on the planets and it it wouldn't give life time to evolve before it gets wiped out.
2: Right, so we'd never really get past that sort of single-celled, bacterial, life form stage on these planets, if even that...
0: If at all, yeah. Um, But this one that's uh, 10.7 light years away, it's called GJ887 or Gliese887, seems to be much more stable.
2: And the system has planets?
0: Yeah, that's the news. We've detected planets now. So they're rocky planets. There are two that are very close to the star, too close uh, to be interesting from an alien life point of view because they're too hot but there's potentially a third planet that's in the Goldilocks zone. So it's not too hot, not too cold, just like Earth.
2: So that's a fingers crossed, potentially.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. The third planet might not exist. Astronomers, (laughs) yeah, well, they saw one orbit of what might be a third planet, but that's not been confirmed yet. So to do that, we're going to have to look again for longer or wait until we get the James Webb Space Telescope launched, hopefully next year. But what is interesting is that this star is boring. It's boring because it doesn't flare up, which in, in this case is a good thing. It means we'll be able to have a really good look at the atmospheres of those other planets. And what has got astronomers excited is that even these small, boring stars seem to have planets. Pretty much every star we've been able to examine closely is turning out to have planets.
2: Hmm. So good, good prospects there for life somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. What's the sci-fi link
0: Well, we've literally only just discovered that Gliese 887 has planets, but already before that, people had been using it for the basis of a living star system in science fiction, uh, most notably in the Revelation space universe of um, author Alastair Reynolds. Um, And incidentally, this star is catalogued in many different ways. It's called GJ 887, but also Lachael 9352, Um, and you might have noticed over the years the Gliese family of stars, uh, Gliese and then a number. We've reported on this a lot over the years.
2: Yeah, where where does that name come from? Why is that?
0: Oh, it turns out it's a German astronomer called Wilhelm Gliese, Um, and in the 50s he uh, named loads and loads of stars. He was an astronomer, he he was conscripted into the German army, fought on the Eastern Front in World War II, but after that he just started cataloguing loads and loads of stars – but initially, this star, this Gliese 887, was catalogued in the 18th century by a French astronomer called Nicolas-Louis de Lacaille. And um, I asked Sandra Jeffers about this. She's the astronomer who's just reported these new planets. And she pointed me to an even longer list of 37 different names for the star. So there doesn't seem to be any agreed system of priority for naming.
2: Uh, hopefully, one day we can ask the people who live there what they call it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We wanted to tell you about a live online event on Thursday, the 9th of July. It's called What Happened at the Big Bang.
0: We've made incredible discoveries about how our cosmos evolved, but there remains a critical gap in the knowledge. We still know very little about what happened in the few seconds, the first few seconds after the Big Bang.
2: In this talk, astrophysicist Dan Hooper will examine how physicists are using the Large Hadron Collider and other experiments to recreate the conditions of the Big Bang and to address mysteries such as how our universe came to contain so much matter and so little antimatter.
0: You can find out all about it on Thursday the 9th of July at our live online event. Visit newscientist.com slash events for more details. Next up, what can evolutionary biology tell us about why we have the leaders we do. Penny?
2: Yeah, so this is an attempt to marry evolutionary theories with business ideas, explored in a feature article in New Scientist by Emma Young this week. So in business or management speak, there tend to be two contrasting leadership styles. Um, You might have heard these described variously as democratic versus autocratic, participative versus directive, or personalised versus positional. Um, But broadly speaking, we're talking here about the Barack Obamas and Jacinda Arderns of the world, in contrast to the Donald Trumps and the Vladimir Putins.
0: Okay. Um, And what's evolution got to do with that?
2: So researchers in the Netherlands and California have put together an evolutionary model to explain these two broad categories of leader. So they've come up with their own names for it. Um, They've described these two categories as prestige and dominance. The idea is that a prestige leader is one that influences people through their superior qualities, such as knowledge and wisdom and vision, whereas a dominance leader is more the kind that exerts influence by demanding support, instilling fear, threatening sanctions.
0: Which sounds very familiar.
2: Yes, so many current leaders would fall under that dominance label, as well as Trump and Putin. Um, There's probably also Xi Jinping and Jair Bolsonaro. Um, According to the researchers who developed the model, these two leadership styles are rooted in biology. So dominance leaders, especially male ones, may have higher levels of testosterone, for example, while prestige leaders may have more oxytocin. So that's a hormone that's more involved in sociality. And the suggestion here is that these two leadership modes may even be older than humans or humanity because similar styles of leadership or contrasting styles of leadership are seen in a wide variety of mammals from meerkats and orcas to hyenas and elephants.
0: So biologically, are humans more into prestige or into dominance?
2: So we can boil this question down to basically, are we more like bonobos, which have prestige leadership, or chimps, which have dominance leadership? And there are arguments for both sides. But the researchers think that we fall more on the bonobo side of things. They say that until recently, um, people actively selected against dominance leaders, uh, we, we much prefer a sort of participatory prestige style of leadership.
0: I can see this being adopted into a management training course soon, mm. whether you're a bonobo or a chimp. I had to go on one once where we were sorted into cats or dogs, according to um, I don't know our styles of management or personality. Um, but anyway, back to chimps and bonobos. Why, why do we have so many chimp leaders today?
2: So uh, they say that um, that's down to cultural evolution, not biological um, evolution. So their suggestion here is that in our really large and complex societies that we have now, Dominance leaders have become more popular because they can protect our huge communities from outsiders and exploitation from within and and those kinds of ideas. And this may also be why populations do appear to vote for more authoritarian leaders when times are tough or, or people feel that they are under threat.
0: Right. And what do you think? Are you buying this?
2: Well, I always take evolutionary psychology with an extremely large helping of salt. Um, These ideas are really interesting to think about, um, but you can't really test them. There does seem to be a correlation between perceived threat and preference for dominance leaders. I have to say, but personally, I I tend to, well, I I really balk at some of the gender arguments, um, which often happens in evolutionary psychology. So one of the ideas here is that Female leaders are often prestige leaders because millions of years of childcare and food gathering have made women more cooperative. But I would say to that, surely there are alternative hypotheses here. So, for example, the general public don't really like women who are seen as aggressive and bossy. So maybe we only let the the cooperative women get through. And also, I would argue there are so few female leaders that it's probably impossible to say.
0: Not to put you on the spot, Penny, but you're a female leader. Where where do you put yourself?
2: Huh. Well, according to the evolutionary idea, I'm probably too short to be much of a dominance leader, but then so was Napoleon. Um, so um, like a bit more seriously, I, I think there may be a bit of a false dichotomy here. Um, it must be possible to lead by good example, but still also take sanctions when necessary, for example.
0: Yeah, so you know, there, there's a third way, basically. We're not stuck with these two kinds of leader.
2: Surely, yeah. And and it has been observed that other animals um, can rely on different kinds of leader depending on the situation. So... One sort of classic example is that if a group is under attack, um, it may be some sort of aggressive males that lead that counterattack. But if the group is really struggling to find food, for example, an elderly female is, is likely to be the one who has all the experience and the knowledge to really guide a group through that kind of situation. And that model is a bit similar to the traditional authority system of the Navajo people in North America who have um, distinct leaders for, for war and peace. And some of this is already being sort of thought about in, in business think. Um, some businesses are experimenting with other forms of leadership where management is sort of decentralized and changing teams decide who's best to lead each particular job. And there is this idea that this gives more scope for prestige practising women to lead. But I'm pretty sceptical of this and and so are others. Apparently there's already evidence that when leadership is granted in this sort of more more informal way, men are much more likely to be handed the power.
0: (laughs) Yeah, what a surprise. (laughs) So, yeah, what can we do then if we want to move away from the dominant leader model?
2: So I don't think we really have many answers, but but clues, we have a handful of clues. So people need to feel less threatened, probably. Um, And also, uh, we do know that in times of economic prosperity, people seem to want more liberal prestige based leaders. However, given the current pandemic, I'm finding it hard to imagine a period of economic prosperity really kicking in anytime soon, which is a little worrying.
1: That's a bit ironic, given that the countries that seem to be doing best at dealing with the pandemic have uh, these prestige type leaders. So I'm thinking of Jacinda Ahern and Angela Merkel and uh, the Finnish prime minister, all coincidentally women. And yet the feeling of threat that the pandemic brings will probably bring in yet more hopeless authoritarian leaders like Trump and Bolsonaro.
2: Yeah, I've I've seen two theories about that that pattern there. Um, I, I think one of them is I, I've seen it suggested that um, to make it as a female leader, you generally have to just be really, really extra good at what you do because it's just that much harder. So there's this idea that some of those female leaders you mentioned are just brilliant. Um, And and they happen to be female. I I think the other um, argument um, that we have in the future this week is that some of those nations like Finland and New Zealand, um, they're relatively small, stable, protected countries, they don't actually feel under threat, they feel safer. So maybe it's easier uh, for them to have uh, prestige leaders. and, And then also that might influence how easy... Or difficult it's been for them to manage the pandemic but obviously we we can't really say which it is for sure but it's really interesting.
0: Now it's time for life form of the week it's our celebration of newsworthy organisms what is it this week Penny?
2: Uh, Well Rowan have you seen snakes on a plane?
0: Uh, Actually I haven't but I can guess what it's about
2: I'm surprised you haven't seen it. It was it was must-watch viewing when I was in grad school. <laughs> but um, that's the beauty of the title. You can absolutely guess what it's about. It's of course flying snakes um, and that's what we're talking about this week. To be clear, um, the snakes in question don't actively fly, they glide, um, but it's still very impressive. They can cover quite long distances by launching themselves from the tops of trees. Uh, we're talking up to 100 metres.
0: OK. And why do they fly? They're snakes. They're supposed to slither. Slither. <laughs>
2: um, so for some snakes, it's more efficient uh, to glide than to slither. Um, so there are really quite a few species that do this. They seem to be more arboreal than ground living. They're adapted to life in the trees um, and less adapted to life on the ground, like regular snakes. So it makes sense if you're in the top of a tree and you want to get to another top of a tree to to jump from one to the other rather than have to go all the way down. We've been interested in these flying snakes for years. They live in Southeast Asia, uh, feed on lizards and mice and small animals like that, bats and birds too.
0: And do we know how they manage to fly so far?
2: Well, essentially they turn their whole body into a wing. uh, So they splay out their ribs and the body becomes a a concave wing shape. Um, And now by filming snakes with high speed cameras, researchers have found that they undulate in the air as they glide.
0: So they're making the S-shape that we're familiar with snakes making, but they're doing that in the air?
2: Yeah, exactly, and, and this seems to stabilise their flight.
0: Do you think it, it helps them whip through the air and travel further?
2: So No, actually. Uh, The researchers built a digital 3D model to simulate the gliding of the paradise tree snake and to look at what effect this undulation had on their flight. And they found that without uh, this kind of undulation S-shape thing, the snakes would pitch downwards or roll and become unstable while mid-air.
0: And do they have any uh, adaptations to help them get up the trees in the first place?
2: Yeah, so they have um, ridge scales on their bellies. Um, that They use these to climb the trunks of trees uh, and then they fly from tree to tree. And the team believes the movement of the flying snakes um, is informative for us because uh, maybe it could help us develop robots that use this kind of aerial snaking undulation to, to glide.
0: Yeah, or you could just give your robot wings.
2: <laughs> yeah, that might be simpler. We do already have quite good functioning drone technology after all. Um, something
0: I was wondering the other day is uh, why there are no herbivorous snakes, just incidentally. There's more mm. than 3,400 species of snake, but none are ho- herbivores. Um, is, it, is this anything you've ever wondered about you two?
2: Mm, I, I'm, Probably my not. First, my first guess would maybe be, is it just that snakes are so good at eating living things, they've never needed to adapt to anything else?
1: My mm. immediate thought is grass snakes, but I guess they're not called grass snakes. <laughs> <they're,
2: yeah. laughs>
1: Well, yeah, it's,
0: it's a bit of a question. It's like uh, the sort of questions you get as an undergraduate biologist, like why are there no green mammals? Uh, and it's a bit weird because you get lizards that eat plant matter and iguanas and tortoises, so why not snakes? Uh, some people think it might be because they can't get the microbes passed on to them by their parents. Uh, also because their fangs uh, kind of preclude them, basically, from eating and processing plants because you need to chew up plant matter to digest it.
2: I guess it's also it's a lot less efficient to get your calories from plants Uh, you have to eat huge amounts of them and and maybe there just isn't room in a snake's body to to contain all of the huge digestive tract necessary.
0: Right which is especially true if you're a flying snake (laughs) although you know there are snakes like boa constrictors that they can eat whole pigs and deer and they seem to manage okay.
2: Yes although they do seem to be out of action for days or weeks don't they where they just sit there digesting it. That's true. Rowan, you've been catching up with the latest on human gene editing. Gene editing is when scientists use a molecular technique to change the DNA sequence in cells and it allows you to add genes or delete them or turn other genes on and off.
0: Yes, and there's a technique called CRISPR that's made this very easy and commonplace and cheap in recent years and we've reported on it it a lot, as you know.
2: Yeah, the revolutionary thing, especially with CRISPR, is just how easy it becomes to edit the genetic code of something. It used to take years and cost huge amounts of money, but now it can be done very easily in in any basic lab. I have to say, I I think as often as once a month, I wonder how much more I could have done during my PhD a decade ago if these (laughs) tools had been available then. But I was researching plant genetics. Gene editing has been a bit more troubling ethically when we're talking about human genes, right?
0: Yeah, so there's there's two sides of it, two ways of using it, one of which is less controversial than the other. The less controversial one is when you edit the genes in the body of a plant or animal to change what the body of it does. So you might make wheat more drought resistant, or you might make tomatoes with more nutrients in them or something like that. Or you might correct a broken gene that causes disease. And there's lots of interesting experiments um, that are now being done on people along those lines.
2: And um, it's funny to think of that as being the less controversial side of this kind of research.
0: Well, it's less so than the one I'll talk about in a minute, which which changes genes in the germ line, so in the eggs and sperm. So the, the changes then get passed on down the generations. But first, the less controversial one. Uh, we reported on a trial a couple of weeks ago, where two people with beta-thalassemia and one with sickle cell disease, had their bone marrow stem cells gene-edited to compensate for the mutated genes. Because in these diseases, beta-thalassemia and sickle cell disease, there are these mutations that affect haemoglobin. That's the protein that carries oxygen in red blood cells. And if you have the disease bad, like these people did, then you require regular blood transfusions.
2: So great news, if, if we can find a way to avoid that. Um, how did they fix this problem?
0: Yeah, it was quite clever. Um, when, we're, when we're fetuses, when we're in the womb, our body make a, makes a certain kind of haemoglobin called fetal haemoglobin and that stops being made when we're born. So what the researchers did was take bone marrow cells from the patients and they used gene editing basically to turn on the production of fetal haemoglobin again then they put the bone marrow cells back in the patient and the cells then start making fetal haemoglobin and then the patients no longer need blood transfusions.
2: And the really exciting thing is is this is a way to tackle uh, genetic disorders. So these conditions are inherited, aren't they?
0: Yeah, they are. So that's the first time that CRISPR gene editing has been used to treat an inherited genetic condition in humans. I mean, it's not perfect. Uh, There are some side effects from the treatment and the people will need monitoring. But overall, it's much better than needing lifelong blood transfusions.
2: And so if it's bone marrow, um, they're not really going to pass these changes on to their children, are they?
0: No. So the changes are only made in the bone marrow, not in in the eggs or the sperm. So that's not in the germ line. Um, And that means they're not permanent heritable changes. And that's why they're less controversial.
2: And and when we do start talking about the germline, it it does get extremely controversial indeed, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Um, A few years ago, researchers have started using CRISPR to edit human embryos. And this is much more far reaching because it can potentially change all the cells in the body. And those changes would then be passed on in sperm and eggs and go on down the generations. But almost everyone is doing this for research purposes, which means that altered embryos aren't allowed to grow after a, a very early stage.
2: Except for that one controversial lab in China.
0: Yeah, that was a scandal a couple of years ago, Yeah, when um, a Chinese researcher announced the birth of two girls who he he had gene-edited as embryos and then implanted.
2: Mm, It's quite alarming.
0: Yeah, uh, it was alarming. It was condemned massively. It was very much jumping in with unproven technology to do something with potentially massive consequences for these girls.
2: But you're not about to tell us that there's been more gene editing of this kind?
0: No, um, but as I was saying, there are people working on gene editing with these very early human embryos. And this week we did learn some of the latest results. And it appears that the most this most commonly used tool called CRISPR-Cas9 makes unwanted changes to the genome. It makes big deletions as well as the edits you do want to make.
2: So that's not good, potentially really quite dangerous.
0: Yeah, um, it's not good. We already knew it could make what are called off-target changes. So those are changes to parts of the genome far away from the target. But now it seems they can make on-target mistakes too.
2: So how much of a problem is that?
0: Well maybe not that much of a problem. Um, I spoke to our CRISPR guru at New Scientist, Michael LePage, and he told me that CRISPR-Cas9 is like Stone Age technology these days, and there are much Mm. better and much more precise forms of CRISPR which don't cause these massive deletions.
2: Some of these next-gen CRISPR methods do sound really sophisticated, but I guess it's important that we don't get too evangelical about it
0: yeah so exactly the latest work does show that there is a lot of work to be done before we can safely attempt to edit embryos that will develop into people but we are on that path
2: that's all for this week thanks for joining us graham and thanks to you for listening Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout.
0: Yes, go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter POD20 at checkout for your discount. Do share your love for our show with your friends and family. Just spread the word. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod, and you can email us at podcast at newscientist.com. Until next time, take care. Goodbye. Goodbye.